Our Father, you have told us that where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. And we're here in your name this morning. And so by declaration of your word, we know that you are present here. And your purpose here this morning is to touch our lives according to our needs and according to your goodwill. You have a plan for each of us individually and as families and couples, whatever we may be here this morning. And Father, I pray that we will hear the truth that will enable us to better walk the path you have set before us, that will enable us to better serve you in whatever capacity you've called us. Every one of us is called in some way to serve. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will uh, open our minds and hearts to truth and drive home to the very center of our being those truths that will help us to be more strongly rooted and grounded in our faith in Jesus Christ and to walk each day in a hostile world uh, in a manner that brings glory to your great name. We ask that you will be present throughout our Sunday school this morning and that you will be accomplishing the purpose of God in every life and we'll give you thanks in Jesus name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 22nd chapter of the book of Numbers, I'd like to read at the beginning of the chapter from verse 1. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as, a, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt, Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed. He whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hands. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And the leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Israel has just finished the conquest of the land east of the Jordan River. They have conquered Gilead all the way from the Arnon River to the Yarmuk River, and they have conquered the Bashan Plateau to the north. 
They have conquered that territory today would be known as Western Jordan and Southwestern Syria. This territory has become a part of the Israelite heritage. Balak, as we notice in this passage, was the king of Moab. And the Israelites had circumvented Moab on their journey north. But you remember last time, uh, because of the song, which was in the latter part of chapter 21, that we read of the, uh, of the great victory that the Amorites had over the Moabites. And then when Israel destroyed the Amorites, this, of course, caused the king of Moab to be more frightened than ever because Israelite, the Israelites had defeated the people who had defeated them. So obviously the Israelites were much more powerful than they. And so what happened was Balak formed an alliance with the Midianites. Now the Midianites were, were basically a nomadic people who traveled much through that part of the world and were frequently involved. You remember it was Midianites that carried Joseph on down to Egypt many, many centuries before and sold him as a slave. They were traveling uh, uh, merchants and, and, and nomadic herders. But anyway, he formed this alliance with them, but he felt that the alliance was insufficient. And, and so what he did was to attempt to get the gods to join his side against Israel. Now you have to understand the thinking of Balak. Now in that previous passage we read last week in the, at the end of chapter 21, it talked about one of the gods of Moab, and that was Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh, as I mentioned to you, was sort of one of the versions of Baal, of the Canaanites. He was descended from Asher and Enlil of the Assyrians and of the Sumerians, uh, basically a, a fertility god. Most all the pagans have a view that there are many gods out there, and these gods are territorial. They control this people, that people, the other people, and whoever is victorious over another people, it is said thereby their god is stronger than the other god. And that's why Sennacherib would say many, many centuries later, as he conquered all the lands and prepared to also capture the city of Jerusalem, that I've carried all the other gods back to my capital in cages. Why not Yahweh? And so Balak here feels that if he can get the gods on his side, even the God of Israel somehow, uh, then he could crush this, this threat to his land. And so what does he do? He decides to send for the most famous witch doctor of that day. So famous is this man that the knowledge of him is had by, by Balak, who lives at least 500 miles probably away from the home. Now in those days, 500 miles was a great deal of distance. Today, 500 miles, you hop in your car a few hours later, you know, one working day basically, and you've covered 500 miles. Or you can do it in an hour in, in an airplane. But in those days, it took a long time to cover 500 miles. If you did it in 10 days, you were moving. And, and so he, he sends for this man who's living over there in Mesopotamia. At least that's what we assume. It says the river, which whenever you see it in that con, uh, printed in that way, it means the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River does, of course, stretch up into the eastern part of what is Syria. So we can't be sure but what he is in, the old land of Paden Aram, from which um, the Jews at one time came, or further over in Mesopotamia. It, the definition is not given. It's not that important. We simply know that he traveled, they had to travel a, a considerable distance to meet with this man. What we're noting here, and, and the thing that I mentioned last week, I kind of tried to emphasize this at the end of class last week, and that is we are looking here at bold-faced spiritual warfare. It's not hidden. 
it, it's not some kind of a secondary agenda behind the scene. I mean, it's bold-faced spiritual warfare. He is calling on the gods to curse Israel. And then he hopes to clean up on him afterwards physically. So it's almost as if spiritual warfare here precedes physical warfare. And that's reality. <laughs> it's just that in our day and age, we live in a country where most people don't believe in spirits and spiritual warfare. And, and so they're totally ignorant of the fact that spiritual warfare is going on all the time. And, and people being drugged down in this, this great battle. And we as Christians have got to be aware of the fact that it's constant. It's always there. Whenever somebody's in your face over something, really there's a spiritual battle going on behind that uh, that's driving this, this collision, if, especially if we're trying to walk with the Lord and, and do His will. So here we see a, a bold representation of a reality that has always existed since the Garden of Eden and will exist until our Lord returns. And we just need to be constantly aware of it. So Balak sends a delegation. A delegation of uh, Moabite and Midianite uh, princes are sent to buy Balaam's services. It probably, as I mentioned a moment ago, took at least 10 days to make the journey. It's very interesting that many, many centuries later, there will be a Greek geographer by the name of Eratosthenes who will endeavor to estimate how far around the world is, what is the circumference of the world. And he will use the fact that an average camel caravan, really moving out across the terrain, will cover about 50 miles a day, you know, translated into miles in our language. And he used that particular statistic by which he ultimately measured the circumference of the world within 4% of the real uh, figure. And if you could imagine, if you're using the average pace of camels out across the desert as one of your measuring tools, that's not exactly computer accuracy. <laughs> but uh, it came out pretty well. So. As again, about 10 days probably, uh, this was not the Pony Express, you know, uh, that was going out across here. So these guys would travel with their retinue, you know, and all the pomp and circumstances. After all, they were princes. They were leaders. They were elders of the land. And so they wouldn't just light out across the landscape scape in, a, in a sweaty, uh, you know, race. They, they would travel with all the pomp and circumstance uh, that was befitting their station in life. And so two weeks maybe. It took them to get to where Balaam was living. And they took with them a fee for his services as a diviner, or actually you might say for his witchcraft, which is really what they're trying to buy. Now, there is no question, regardless of what you read in some of these passages here and the way you might interpret it if you had a certain uh, point of view, Balaam is a servant of the evil one. He is not a servant of God. He becomes a servant of God inadvertently, not by his choice, but he is not a believer in the God of Israel. And so when the delegation comes, he tells the delegation that, I don't know if I can come with you, I have to consult this God of Israel to find out if I can go with you. And we might say, well, he consults God. Anybody who prays to God must really you know God, right? I don't think so. Because there is one thing that a sorcerer knows for sure, and that is the reality of the spiritual realm. Sorcerers know that. Witch doctors know that. Shamans know that. They, they know that the spirit world is real and that there are forces and powers out there that are, that are able to impact life. And so Balaam undoubtedly viewed Israel's God as one of the many gods behind which, or I, we could say today, one of the many s evil spirits masquerading as a god. 
And that is the reality of paganism. Let me read a verse to you, a couple of verses, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 19. Paul is leading up to his discussion in the 11th chapter concerning the Lord's Supper. And in so doing, he's talking about the fact that some people offer sacrifices to idols and uh, some people offer sacrifices to other gods. And, and what does this all mean? You know, what is the reality of it? And so Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 19, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? He's saying these are not real realities in the sense of being gods. Idols are not gods. Therefore, what are they? He says, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharer, sharers in demons. The gods of, of the ancient peoples, the gods of the Sumerians, Enlil and Ishtar, who were fertility god and goddesses. Osiris and Isis, fertility god and goddess amongst the Egyptians. Uh, Chemosh, Molech, Dagon, Baal in his many forms. These are all demons expressing themselves through the worship of this so-called god. There is no god but God. But humans become convinced by the power of demonic influence that there are other gods and that the God of Israel is just one amongst many. And that is Balaam's approach here. He is going before Yahweh to influence the God of the people that he's supposed to curse because he knows that if he tries to go and curse a people and the God is not cooperating, he could be in big trouble. One of the things that people who involve themselves in, in demonic worship know that it's a very dangerous thing. And so as a shaman, he knew he could manipulate the spirits only with the cooperation of the spirits. Now that's one thing that's not always told when people are talking about demonism and, and, and devil worship and so forth. It's as if if you do the right things, you can get the demons to do what you want to do, them to do, like you've got them on a leash or something. Hardly. They do what you want them to do because you're doing what they want you to do. And, and therefore, somebody who's a, quote, witch doctor seems to have power because the demons are cooperating with him because they have a greater agenda than his agenda. And so it is here with Balaam. He thinks that he can convince the God of Israel to, you know, make a deal. He's going to strike a deal with Yahweh. You know, you do this for me and, and I'll do something good for you, you know, whatever that uh, would be. And so he wants to manipulate the God of Israel, but he knows he better work it out first for, so he won't look like a fool uh, when the actual event comes place. Now, what is amazing about this passage is God talks to him. I mean, he actually is able to communicate with the real God of Israel. I mean, God is talking to a pagan seer. But you know, that's not without precedent in Scripture. There are several passages that talk about God using Cyrus, the king of the Persians, as my servant, although he says, you, Cyrus, do not know me. <laughs> God works through whomever he chooses to accomplish whatever he wishes. And he tells Balaam in no uncertain terms here that you are not to attempt to curse Israel. And he says, why? Because Israel is blessed by me. Throughout the Old Testament, we find that the only true source of blessing is God. And the only true source of cursing is God. 
Satan is not the source of cursing. God is the only true source of cursing. And that which is blessed by God is blessed, and that which is cursed by God is cursed. And nobody and no power is ever going to change that. You remember that, as I read in this passage this morning, Balak, in attempting to butter up Balaam, at the end of verse 6 says, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. He is ascribing to this man Balaam the attributes of Almighty God. It's got to be pretty flattering to Balaam. It's a foolish statement by Balak, but he doesn't know any better because he's just functioning within the realm of all these pagan gods who, who are kind of co-equal with one another. And you've got to be appeasing the right one at the right time, you know, give the right gifts. And as we read on about Balaam, we discover he has his methods of trying to get God to cooperate uh, with him. One of the things we need to note here is God is not afraid of Balaam's curse. God is not saying to Balaam, you don't dare curse Israel because God's afraid that his curse might mean anything. He is telling Balaam, you don't curse Israel for your own sake and for Balak's sake. You don't attempt to curse Israel. He said to Balaam, the reason you will not curse Israel is because Israel is, and the Hebrew word here is barak. Israel is Barak of God, blessed of God. Now, where in the world did this blessing come from? Do we have any record of this blessing? Yeah, I guess we do. We have a great deal of record of this blessing. But let's go back to the first statement of this blessing in the 12th chapter of Genesis. You may remember we were in this chapter about six years ago, maybe, seven. (laughs) We're going back about half a millennium here to Abraham, who has come forth from Ur the Chaldees to Haran, and from Haran now he has journeyed southward after the death of his father Terah. And he is going forth to the country to which God had called him. And so God says in the 12th chapter, beginning at verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, God has created a nation that is to be a blessing to the entire earth. And, of course, that blessing would be manifest ultimately in the birth of Messiah. But God is warning Balaam, you don't want to curse Israel because whoever curses Israel is cursed of God. Now, I personally feel Balaam went to an unrepentant grave and is ultimately cursed by God. But God's giving him opportunity here. God is talking to this man. God is revealing something of himself. And as we'll see a little bit later on, he will reveal himself in a much more mighty way. So this man has absolutely no excuse. Later on, Abraham will be faced with the task that God has put upon him of going to the top of Mount Moriah and there to make a sacrifice, to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, who's, you know, in the heritage that is supposed to produce Messiah. And and God is saying, I want him sacrificed. And so Abraham faithfully goes up there to do what God commands and to even sacrifice his son if that's really what God commanded. 
And I, I really feel, of course, that Abraham knew in his heart that God was not going to actually extract the life of his own son, that is, of Abraham's son, because he, of what he said there. He said, I and the, and the boy will be back to his servants as he went up the mountain. But when Abraham faithfully demonstrated that he was willing to do whatever God called upon him to do, God repeated his statement of blessing in chapter 22, uh, beginning at verse 14. And Abraham called the, the name of that place, the Lord will provide Yahweh Jireh, as it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said to him, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." This is the blessing God has put upon his people. And there is a sense in which that blessing has not been removed. There is a sense in which, of course, they have denied it and turned it into a curse, as we'll see. But there is a sense in which it still remains. This is the general blessing of God upon Israel. And there was no way that Balaam would cancel that out. And God's dealing with Balaam is for the sake of the glorification of his name and for Balaam's own ultimate uh, salvation, if that would be what he would be willing to participate in, which uh, Scripture seems to deny that he would. This general blessing of God upon Israel does not mean, does not mean that they would experience loving kindness of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, no matter what they did. As I've emphasized many, many times before, the blessings of God, the promises of God, are contingent. What it meant was that nothing evil would happen to Israel without God's explicit permission. Nothing will happen evil to Israel without God's explicit permission. And by extraction, that's true for us too. Nothing evil happens to us without God's explicit permission if we are his people walking in his way. But as you have, may read, uh, may remember from the book of Malachi, God said that if you choose to walk in disobedience and to ignore me, I will turn your blessing into cursing. In Malachi chapter uh, 2 we read, And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And he says, exactly and specifically, I will curse your blessings. I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart, the truth of what God has been saying. God's blessing is contingent upon obedience. Faithfulness to God will result in his blessing. Those who are blessed of God Scripture makes it clear, are in turn to be a blessing to others. In fact, if we are blessed of God, we will be a blessing to others, even if we don't plan it that way, because God will work through us to bless others as he blesses us. What this means is that we are to display in whatever measure that is possible, 
some of the attributes of God. We're to display the loving kindness of God. We're to display the faithfulness of God. We're to display truth. I mean, remember when, when Abraham, uh, not Abraham, when Moses was in the cleft of the rock, God came by and God displayed to him these characteristics, these attributes of his character. And, and he was building this into Moses and, and into his people. And as we are blessed, in, in turn, we are to display the reality of that blessing to others who are around us. In addition, the blessed are to bless those around them, not just in loving kindness and patience and faithfulness and truth, but also materially, whenever that is possible and whenever that is necessary. Let me read from the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 12, Deuteronomy 15, 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. And you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Now that's set within a specific context, but I think it's a general truth. I don't think it's limited to just the Hebrews who set free one of their own people. I think it's a, it's a general truth that refers to all of God's people that as God has blessed us, we in turn are to bless others in whatever way their need may be represented and in whatever way we are capable. If our vats are, so to speak, overflowing, that overflow uh, should go to those who have need. And, and that's part of, an expre- of the expression of the blessing of God. That's part of what the church is all about. It's not just to get together and and sing a few songs and listen to a message and go home and act like nothing ever happened. The meeting of the church is, is to be for the purpose of blessing one another in whatever way we can and, and being brought into remembrance of the needs of one another throughout the week that's before us. One of the, good, one, one of the great uh, blessings of a, of a prayer ministry like this is that you are brought in contact with needs others may have between Sundays and an opportunity to at least pray for one another, which is something which is directly an expression of the character of God and is directly the means by which all of us can bless one another. We may not have two dimes to to rub together, probably not too many of us are in that bad a shape, but, but we definitely can all pray for one another. Now, to receive the blessing of God is a choice that we have to make. We can choose to be blessed or we can choose not to be blessed. And we might say, who in their right mind would ever choose not to be blessed? Well, to choose to receive God's blessing puts us in a responsible place. It puts us in a place where we are obligated to be obedient to God. And that's something that is very serious to be considered. Let's turn to the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy. Beginning verse 19, verses 19-20. I call heaven and earth to witness. This is, of course, the last words of the great man Moses, so to speak. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. By what? Loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and holding fast to him. 
For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. The blessing, you see, is contingent upon the willingness to love the Lord, obey His voice, and cling fast to Him. If we choose the blessing of God and then choose to squander it on our own willful ways, it turns into a curse. By accepting the blessing of God, we are ob obligating ourselves in return to be obedient to Him, to love Him, and to allow that blessing to radiate out to others. That's our obligation. We don't dare receive the blessing of God unless we're willing to be obedient. If we go back to the 22nd chapter of Numbers, again, where we're looking, we, we find again that God said to Balaam, you will not curse Israel, period. I mean, God said this to him in a way that he understood. And so what happened was Balaam was intimidated. You know, if you've been in conversation with God Almighty, you'd probably be intimidated too, especially if you're a pagan. But notice he obeys the voice of God. Now, why does he obey? Is it because he trusts and obeys? No, no. He obeys <laughs> because he's overpowered here. He's overmatched. It's like, you know, you meet up with the 800-pound gorilla. You're, you're probably not going to be too smart-alecky or anything else. You're going to say, yes, whatever you like, sir. Uh, you know, because you're overpowered. You're outmatched. And, and so it is here with Balaam. He obeys the word and he tells the delegates, go home, I'm not coming with you. And you know, that could have been the end of it right there. That should have been the end of it. Balak should have said, well, I gave it a shot. Didn't work. But, but Balaam is paranoid beyond belief. And he's very persistent. And you might say, but, but Balaam has heard the word of the Lord. He has seen something of God's power. Why does he even entertain the possibility of, uh, you know, maybe running this by God again? Because he is greedy beyond belief. Well, maybe not beyond belief. He's very greedy, as most people are. And he wants what's being offered, especially when they come back the second time because they've, he's redoubled the ante, you know. And so the delegates went back and basically reported Balak and said, Balaam won't come. Who put it in Balak's mind to give it another try, to, to not give up? Well, I think Satan had a big role in this. I think he inspired him to make a bigger effort than before. He'll come. Just put a bigger bait out there. He'll come. Verse 15 of, of 22, Numbers 22. Then Balak again sent leaders, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. And they came to Balaam and they said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder, from, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then and curse this people for me. And Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were here to give me his house full of silver and gold, boy, he had to bite his tongue to say that, I could not do anything either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Yeah, right. Now, please, I mean, that's a true statement, even though he doesn't believe it in the sense of, of conversion. Now, please... 
you also stay here tonight and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. And God came to Balaam that night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. We're staring hypocrisy right in the mouth here. Balak was so convinced that the threat of Israel was worth any cost to eliminate, he would not take no for an answer from Balaam. And instead, what he does, he sends an, a more prestigious delegation, more pomp, more circumstance, you know, more obvious trappings of wealth, uh, men of, of great stature within the kingdom of Moab, maybe even his own son, who knows, it doesn't say. And, and he goes and he sends them with an even greater honorarium than before. In fact, the wording of verse in, uh, 17 seems to indicate that Balak was offering to Balaam the famous carte blanche, a signed check. You do what I want and you fill in the amount. Like Faust, those listening to the devil will sell their souls to achieve their ends. And that's what Balak and ultimately Balaam are doing here. Balaam, of course, offers this protest. I don't know how vehement it was. He says, it didn't matter how much money you offer me. Oh, how could that come out of my mouth? Uh, no matter how much money you offer me, if Yahweh forbids me, I can't go with you and I can't curse Israel because I will not be successful if I do. And who knows, maybe I'll die en route. And maybe you will too. I don't think he says all those things. He may not even thought all of that through. But he is... Um, at least saying this to these, to these delegates. But the money was so appealing, and the offer was so great, he says, but on the other hand, why don't you guys stick around tonight? <laughs> and I'll, I'll go back to Yahweh, and I'm going to find out, maybe I didn't really hear him right the first time, or maybe I can strike a deal with him. Maybe he'll change his mind. Now, one of the characteristics of God Almighty is immutability. And we always have to remember that whenever we're looking at any passage of Scripture, and that will be very true of this passage of Scripture, God is immutable, which means God is non-changing. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God says one thing one moment and another thing this next moment, you know that it's not because he is capricious and because he suddenly decided, oh, well, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Let's, let's do it this way now. No. We have to understand that behind it is God's divine, immutable plan. Now, interestingly enough, God does speak to Balaam again. God could have said, what are you doing back here, bud? I told you before what to do. But no, God speaks to Balaam again. And this time he says, go. Now, I think Balaam thinks, wow, you know, I'm, I'm convincing him. Slow task, but I'm convincing him. But you'll notice what God says. You will go, but you will say only the words I give you to say. Well, Balaam thinks, okay. You see, he is a pagan seer. He has dealt with spirits before. And he knows the spirits are one day this way and another day that way. And he knows that all the gods he's ever have contact, had contact with are totally capricious. So he probably thinks, okay, that's what God says. But when the rubber hits the road and the actual incident takes place, I'll, I'll get my way. Now the question is, why is it that God seems to change his mind here? 
He says, you will not go and curse Israel. Now he says, go ahead and go. Well, he doesn't say, go ahead and go and curse Israel. He just says, you can go, but you'll say what I tell you to say, and that's all you are going to say. And what do we see here? God is unfolding a plan, and his plan is to take this pagan manipulator and use him to glorify himself and bless Israel. And if you know the story, that's exactly what happens. This guy stands on the hilltop, he's supposed to curse Israel, and all that comes out of his mouth is blessing. I, he couldn't believe his own words, and Balak was ready to kill him. Well, let's look at verse 21. Now, when Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of... Now, Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he's riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went out into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey and turned her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and he struck the donkey with his stick. So the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have, you, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. We have a very interesting passage in front of us here. <laughs> First of all, we discover that, that God's attitudes and actions seem to be rather contradictory here. Because in verse 20, he said to Balaam, Go. And then in verse 22, it says he was angry with him for going. I've already said that God is immutable and does not change his mind. I mean, really change his mind. <clears throat> what is, what's this all about here? I think the answer to the imperate contradiction is not that God was angry in the fact that he was actually going, but because God knew the heart of this man. And God knew that Balaam in his heart is going. Yeah, God said I can go, but only if I speak God's word. And Balaam in his heart is saying, but when the, real, when the reality comes, I'll say what I want to say, regardless of what Yahweh wants. Or I will convince him by then that it's okay to curse Israel. God knew then in his heart he was dead wrong. He was going because God said he could go, but in his heart he was going to do his will and not the will that God had already said to him was God's will in this matter. He wanted, he hoped, to get around God's prohibition, to satisfy Balak, and to reap immense reward. He wanted to be richer than he was. And this, this understanding, to me at least, seems to be supported by what Peter says in um, his second letter. In the second chapter of 2 Peter, we read this. Peter is a wonderful book to study when it comes to trying to figure out something of the chaos that we see in the supposed Christian world today. So many voices saying things which are often contradictory. How come? 
Well, Peter is talking here about in the first verse, but false witnesses also rose up among the people, just as there will also be false witness, false teachers, false prophets among you. And, and the world is full of them today. So many of them come saying they're in the name of Jesus, but they're false prophets, false teachers. And with that as the context, uh, Peter says down in verse 15, forsaking the right way, he's talking about these false teachers, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet, momentarily anyway. But, but notice what Peter is saying here. He sa he's talking about him in the context of false teachers, false prophets. Balaam is a false prophet. And why? Because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He wanted all he could garner from this, and he was willing to put himself in a rather dangerous position in an attempt to gain it. What you read, what I read here in verses 20 to 23, uh, 23 to 30, sounds like a fairy story. But in actuality, what this passage reveals to us is that the Lord of all creation is able to communicate by whatever means he so chooses. Right? What we're looking at here is a theophany. The angel of the Lord. You read through this passage and you get the full impact of this here because he speaks not as an angel would speak, but he speaks with the voice of God himself. So this is a theophany, a manifestation of God in angelic form. And the irony here is that God opened the eyes of the donkey to see what the seer couldn't see. The famous diviner, the famous prophet, was more spiritually blind than his donkey. And a donkey is usually looked upon as a symbol of ignorance. Well, let me read this passage that I think uh, kind of enlightens us in terms of not necessarily this specific uh, event, but the whole concept here of wherein is truth. Uh, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, beginning at verse 18. Because you and I are often maligned for being, you know, narrow-minded people who, who can't, you know, we live in a scientific world and we can't see that science has got all the answers and we uh, hang on to this old faith. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles stupidity. But to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And of course, that's hyperbole. There is no foolishness in God. And there is no weakness in God. But if there had been, for consider your calling, brethren, that, not, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, 
the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And if you don't, under, don't believe the truth of this, go back and study the history of the church and you'll discover very few of the wealthy and the powerful ever joined the kingdom of God. It was the masses of the poor, the slaves, those who had no power politically, economically in life. They're the ones who believed. And that's so one of the reasons why the wealthy wouldn't believe. If those ignorant slobs believe, then it can't be a religion for me because I am mighty and powerful and intelligent and I'm what they are not. Arrogance kills and destroys. Well, this poor donkey is caught between this hard-headed prophet and the angel of the Lord. And finally, the donkey just, l just lays down out of total frustration. Can't go ahead because there's the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword. And this guy's beat me to death, so just plop. The donkey falls down from under him. And this guy is totally clueless. He doesn't understand this donkey's behavior. And so he begins to beat the animal. And what is so incredible is the fact that this donkey spoke to him and could even count it says, you've hit me three times. <laughs> this doesn't even seem to surprise Balaam. He just carries on this conversation with his donkey. Now, I don't know, if a donkey started talking to me, I'd be a little bit concerned. You know? I mean, he carries on this conversation as if it was an everyday event. You know, he does this, does, does this all the time, you know? He probably did talk to his donkey on many occasions, but the donkey had never talked back, talked back before. Now, why is this so? Why, why does he do this? Is there any other animal described in the Pentateuch which talked? Well, yeah, you all know that the serpent spoke in the garden. And, and Adam and Eve didn't seem to be particularly taken back by that, which implies maybe other animals did talk at that time. I don't know. But who was behind the serpent? Satan, because he is described as the ser serpent many times in Scripture. Who is Balaam? He is an occultic practitioner. I think he has heard the voice of demons coming out of the mouths of animals before. So this is not a surprising thing to him. The problem is he doesn't realize, however, that this is not the voice of a demon, but the voice of God Almighty. And of course, we understand how it happens because it says the, that the Lord opened the angel, uh, I mean, opened the mouth of the donkey and spoke through him. So, you know, we know it's not the super intelligent donkey. It's God at work here. Well... What happens to Balaam next is very interesting and how the whole story develops from this point on. And the tragedy that will come in the long run is all part of what we will be studying in the days ahead.